ask anyone over the age of 65 who has ugly pain on their toenails, I think so. All right. It's a big deal. So um, we're going to move on to the last speaker for the afternoon. Uh, Dr. Mark Solkowski is a professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and one of the really leaders in, um, in HIV and HCV uh, at all levels and uh, a very appropriate thing to close the meeting with. So, Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here talking to this group. And uh, I do believe what I said earlier that I think all of you will be responsible for curing hepatitis C in your patient panels at some point in the near future. Now, I was asked to come up with a catchy title, and hepatitis C has really suffered from a catchy title. The, the FDA calls these DAAs, direct acting antivirals, to distinguish from interferon, which is not direct. So I came up with HEAT, highly effective anti-HCV therapy. I'm not sure it's going to stick. We'll see. It's the first time I've used it. I think it's, it's got a chance, maybe a small chance. So these are my uh, disclosures, uh, consulting for uh, several companies involved in hepatitis C development. Uh, educational objectives are here. And we'll start with a couple of questions. Uh, so the DAAs are currently in clinical development targeting all of the following except. Which one of these does not have a drug in development for it? Uh, one is NS5B polymerase, two is protease, three is NS5A. Four is P7, and five is helicase. Which one of these does not have a drug in development? Now, what's interesting is that this were uh, HIV, everyone knows the different targets, but this is a whole new uh, viral pathogen. We'll talk about these. So it's actually helicase. The P7 was one of those little tricks. It's, uh, it turns out there is a drug in development. It's actually active against both HIV and hepatitis C potentially, so there is a drug in development. The heel case has been elusive since the crystal structure was developed in 96. Uh, which of the following DAAs are currently in phase three clinical trials? Which of these drugs in the last stage of testing? Uh, one, ABT450, two, Sermipravir, three, Ducladesvir, four, Faldaprevir, or five, all of the above? Go ahead and vote. That's, uh, that's correct. We'll go through some of these as we go further. Let me start with the case. It's a 62-year-old man. Hepatitis C due to remote injection drug use. I don't have time to discuss the new uh, recommendations for screening all adults without HIV born between 1945-1965. But this individual is HIV infected, so he should be screened. There is some debate about annually if you're negative. But he's been tested. He's on a regimen of a fibrin, stenophyr, and FTC, undetectable, CD4 count 350, has comorbid conditions, and he was evaluated for hepatitis C. And his ALT is 43, platelet count is 265,000. Liver function is looking quite good, as reflected by bilirubin, albumin, and INR. He undergoes a liver biopsy that shows minimal portal fibrosis. And what I want to spend the first few minutes talking about is this issue of staging disease. And what I would ask you to think about is that the fibrosis stage is like a CD4 cell count. And in terms of thinking about your patient's prognosis, if a patient has a CD4 cell count of, let's say, 25, 
you're more concerned about immediate risk than you are a CD4 count of 700. So the portal fibrosis stage goes from none to cirrhosis. And this is mild portal fibrosis, what we often call stage one. And the question is, is this prognostic in the patient group? And more importantly, can we get at this without a biopsy? Liver biopsy is obviously invasive. CD4 cell count, you go down and give blood. In, there are a number of different things that you can use. Some of them you already have. APRI is AST and platelet ratio index. The lower the platelet count, the higher the AST, the worse the liver. There is a commercial test called FibroShore that's available and has been validated in HIV. And on the other side, FibroScan is a technique to measure liver stiffness that is used all over the world and has been validated in HIV and was just finally approved in the United States on April 4th, 2013. The implications are you'll be able to send a patient for a rapid, non-invasive, office-based screening, which will tell you how stiff the liver is, and it does correlate with outcome. This is some data from the Johns Hopkins HIV clinic where we prospectively followed people according to their Medivere fibrosis stage. And what you see is really a very nice dose-response relationship. Those with F0, if you look at liver risk over to your right, had very minimal risk of dying to liver death in, over a seven-year period of follow-up. Stage one, also a very good prognosis, that's minimal portal fibrosis, whereas the cirrhotic patients on the bottom had the greatest risk. So it really is an appropriate staging test. Now I have a very similar slide with liver stiffness measurement. The more stiff your liver gets, the more likely you are to progress. Now this doesn't project very well, but what I wanted to make the point of this slide is that liver disease stage was an independent predictor of mortality, both all-cause and liver mortality. I would make the case that for your patients with hepatitis C, if you don't know what stage the liver is at, you haven't fully evaluated them. So soon you'll have the opportunity to do it by a non-invasive test. The other point to make before moving on is that the provision of antiretroviral therapy was linked to a 66% reduction in liver death. So heart, it turns out, for the most part, is good for the liver. Hepatitis C eradication is even better. This looks at analysis of outcomes according to HCV RNA response to antiviral therapy. If you achieved eradication or viral suppression during therapy, no outcomes occurred, including among 19 cirrhotic patients. If you took treatment and failed virologically, no benefit. You had the same risk of progression that people were not treated. So eradication of hepatitis C is a good thing, and there's actually strong evidence that support that. What's the current standard of care? Well, as of this year, genotype 2 and 3 infected patients still get peg interferon ribavirin. Genotype 1, the current standard, is tilapia or plus peg interferon or ribavirin. I'll talk about some of the data that lead me to say that that is the standard for HIV hepatitis C co-infected patients. But I also want to focus on this bottom point. Deferral of treatment in anticipation of new therapies is the most common standard of care right now. So in my patient with minimal disease, the question is, do I feel comfortable deferring therapy? And we'll talk about that. But the short answer is yes, I think this patient can wait. This is tilapia and bocephavir, the SVR rates compared to peg-interferon ribavirin in HIV-negative people. Now what I want you to focus on is the delta over control. How much benefit do genotype 1 patients get by taking a protease inhibitor? And what you can see is, is about 30%. 
the SVR or cure rate goes up by 30% over standard therapy. When we get into talking about HIV patients, the delta remains about the same. Unfortunately, this is interferon and ribavirin based. And this figure just simply shows you all the body system's interferon effects. It affects constitutional symptoms, depression, it affects skin, it can affect the lungs, bone marrow suppression, both anemia and thrombocytopenia, as well as causing infections to those with cirrhosis. So side effects are a major deal with interferon and ribavirin. When you add tilapia and bocephyr, you increase the side effect profile, tilapia leading to both rash, sometimes severe with a black box warning for dress or Stevens-Johnson, as well as anemia, relatively severe anemia, and anorectal burning that can occur if you don't take tilapia with enough fat. It needs to be taken with at least 20 grams of fat, bocephyr primarily causing anemia. In other words, adding a third medication to peganinferon and ribavirin makes the side effects worse. Now, where are the data in co-infection? Well, there really are two small trials. There are phase three trials ongoing, including the ACTG. But I will submit to you, those trials will be irrelevant by the time they're complete. There will be new drugs that will be approved before the completion of the phase three tilapavir-bocephyr trials. So this is, in essence, all we've got. Tilapavir, 38 patients compared to 22 on placebo. Bocephyr, 64. All the patients had well-controlled HIV. The Tlaffer trial did enroll some on no antiretroviral therapy, and they all used 48 weeks of peganinferon and ribavirin. No one got to shorten therapy to 24 weeks. For Tlaffer, the use of Tlaffer is only for the first 12 weeks. For Bocephavir, it was four weeks of peganinferon and ribavirin, followed by 44 weeks of triple therapy. So this is a, a long course of treatment. But the overall SVR rate was 74% versus 45% which if you do a bit of quick math, that's about the same 30% delta over control. So we see a preservation of the benefit of that effect. Now this is a small trial, but the response rates appeared the same. The good news and the bad news was that the side effect profile was also the same. There was no indication that tilapia led to more AEs in this patient population. In fact, these patients were managed fairly aggressively for anemia and other factors and seem to do fairly well. But still, a, a laundry list of side effects that are described at best as unpleasant. This is the pharmacokinetic interaction. What's emerged is that you really, the drug of choice for tilapia embocephyr is probably a raltegavir-based backbone. You can use it with atazanavir. That's okay as well. And if Favrin, you have to increase the tilapia to three tablets thrice daily. The cost of that is really exorbitant. It's more than $25,000 in addition to the baseline cost to, to use the Favrin. So I personally like to take patients off the Favrins because it's, o it's only uh, two tablets every eight hours, not three, and the savings is significant. So this can be used with anti-HIV therapy. Bocephavir, 26% versus 61%. Again, this preservation of the antiviral effect over control. Now, I should say that both these trials are, uh, one is in press and one is close to being published. We'll see these relatively soon. This was a side effect profile, and bocephir was well tolerated with the addition of excess anemia, which was certainly common, but it didn't add rash. It does not add anorectal burning, so it is reasonably tolerated. Along the bottom line is neutropenia. 20% became neutropenic. Bocephir adds to neutropenia. This is the drug interactions. 
And although the ACTG study is further evaluating bocephalia and HIV PIs, you'll see this bi-directional interaction. You lower both the hepatitis C PI as well as the HIV PI. In my mind, the best drug and perhaps the only drug to reliably use bocephalia is raltegravir because of the absence of significant interactions. And that's been my approach in clinical practice. I do think it's worthy of additional study, and that's being done now in the ACTG. The reason it's being studied is that HIV breakthrough was not observed in the clinical trial in many patients taking HIV PIs. But I would ask you to look closely at what happened to those patients. So the story is, on the surface, that seven patients overall had HIV breakthrough. Three of 64 on bocephavir and four of 34 on pegravivir. So the idea is that, well, this breakthrough happens even on placebo. But look closely at the patient. So there's an interaction with that azanavir, lopinavir, and bocephavir. And you see the patients start to break through, but they stay very low while they're taking interferon alpha. But when interferon stops, that's EOT, end of treatment, the viral load comes up. The patient in the middle changed their therapy. What you get from interferon is a one-log suppression in HIV RNA. One of the reasons why I mention this is I actually don't think these data are particularly reassuring for the combination because interferon played a role. The second reason why I mention it is when we get to interferon-free regimens and talk about interactions, we won't have the benefit, if you will, of peg-interferon as an anti-HIV drug. It may be its only benefit in terms of additional agent. Well, what about drugs in development? I promised to talk about uh, mechanisms. Well, the key mechanisms are polymerase inhibitors. These target the enzyme that copies the single-strand RNA. The nucleotide nucleoside analogs are chain terminators. There's also non-nucleoside inhibitors that function a bit much like the way nevirapine efavirenz do. They're allosteric inhibitors, very low genetic barrier to resistance. There are protease inhibitors that function in the exact same way as HIV protease, although it's a different uh, type of protease and there's no cross-activity. And then there's these funny NS5A inhibitors. I say funny because NS5A is a glycoprotein that hepatitis C has, and nobody really knows what it does. It interacts with the polymerase and cyclophilin, a host enzyme, and it appears to act like an accelerator. The virus can replicate more readily. Well, it turns out that if you give a drug that binds to it, a single dose can drop the viral load by four log. Remarkable. No one would have predicted it. That paper is published in, in uh, Nature as a real proof of concept. And they have emerged as a real backbone. The catch is a single dose already selects resistant variants, so a very low uh, barrier to resistance. What the important part is, up in the corner, is combinations of regimens. These are now being put together. I'm going to go through these and give you sort of an update of where we're at. So these are regimens in or have completed phase three. The ones with that little funny sign next to them have been submitted to the FDA. So in April of 2013, sofosbuvir and ribavirin for genotype 2 and 3, that's a nucleotide analog polymerase inhibitor plus ribavirin for genotype 2 and 3 was submitted. And then the second row from the bottom, sofosbuvir, peg-interferon, ribavirin has been submitted for genotype 1. We'll talk about this study. It's only 12 weeks. Semiprovir, which is a once-daily protease, no anemia, no rash, has also been submitted to the FDA with peg-interferon and ribavirin. 
And as we speak, there are phase three clinical trials of all oral regimens, including NS5A plus polymerase with or without ribavirin, API, NS5A, non-nuke. And the phase three trials are nearly complete. And the trials are short. So we'll actually start to see data from these trials in the fall and early winter of 2014 with submissions next year for all oral interferon-free therapies. There are some regimens only for genotype 1 subtype B, and we won't get into those too much today. There's also a new type of interferon called lambda interferon that does not actually have the same constitutional side effects. Well, let, the way I've broken these down is there are regimens that contain protease inhibitors but no nukes, and then there's nuke regimens. Sounds a bit familiar. We'll first talk about the ones that are nuke sparing. They do not include sofosbuvir. This is a regimen that was tested in HIV. Doug Dietrich presented these data at CROI. Faldaprevir, a once-daily protease inhibitor, no anemia, plus peganinferon ribavirin, and faldaprevir was given for either 12 or 24 weeks in combination with peganinferon ribavirin, and some patients got to take treatment for only 24 weeks. And these were the overall on-treatment response rates. These are not sustained virologic response rates, but at week four, you can see suppression of HCVRNA in 80 to 90% of individuals. Exactly the same pattern as seen in mono-infected patients. And good tolerability was also uh, recognized. In fact, this slide compares the mono-infected to the co-infected, the mono-infected patients being in the dashed line and really the same on-treatment suppression comparing across studies. Now, this was simiprovir plus peg interferon ribavirin in treatment-naive as well as treatment-experienced patients, those who failed peg ribavirin. Simiprovir for only 12 weeks, one pill once a day, and many patients qualified for 24 weeks of therapy. And what was presented was some SVR, sustained virologic response data. Among those who have been never been treated or those treated who experienced relapse, the SVR rate was 75 to 80%. So this reflects a major advance in terms of treatment because the tolerability was also substantially better, although it still contained peg interferon or ribavirin. Now this is a study that was called Aviator. This is a mono-infected study. This regimen has not yet been tested in HIV-infected patients, and perhaps when I describe the regimen, you understand why it's been challenging. ABT450 is a protease inhibitor in the final stage of testing. It's boosted by ritonavir. It's given with a once-daily ABT267 NS5A. That's a, now a single tablet, ritonavir 450 and 267, one pill plus a non-nuke called 333, that's twice daily, and ribavirin, three tablets, twice daily. The regimen was tested in several different ways. The first was eight weeks versus 12 weeks versus 24 weeks. The next was to remove ribavirin from some of these arms or to remove 333. And the final point they looked at was naive versus null responders to peg interferon ribavirin. What you can look at at the SVR12, which is the endpoint for clinical trials, in the best group, that the group that got all three direct acting antivirals plus ribavirin, 99% SVR. 12 weeks of therapy, a combination of pills, 99%. If you remove the ribavirin, 
it falls to 90%. If you treat only eight weeks, it falls to 89%. So the sweet spot appears to be 12 weeks. When you're at 99%, going to 24 weeks can't raise the SVR rate. Among null responders, it was 93%, a bit more breakthrough among those with gene type 1 subtype A. So if you look at the failures, both breakthrough and relapse, among that regimen of the three DAAs plus ribavirin, one viral relapse, no breakthroughs during therapy. This regimen is now well into phase three, and there are clinical trials being developed for co-infected patients, both by the company developing these agents as well as the ACTG, and the ACTG plans to test this combination plus rautegravir. Now, the only concern with combining this regimen with rautegravir is not a PK1, it's the fact that ritonavir is part of the regimen for hepatitis C. So we'll see how this goes, but it's a very encouraging phase 2B clinical trial with 99% eradication in one of the groups. And this was the side effect profile. Only two of 448 patients stopped because of side effects. There was some fatigue, a bit of headache, and insomnia. It turns out that these are the side effects people have when they take placebo as well, fatigue, headache, and insomnia. There is some bilirubin increase, but relatively minor in these patients. So the side effect profile compared to, let's say, telapavir, peganifir, and ribavir is really night and day. But what about the nucleus-tied analog-containing regimens? And these have already, as I mentioned, entered phase three. In fact, New England Journal of Medicine on April 23rd published four studies crammed into two papers, and I'm going to go through some of that data. This was the so-called neutrino study. This is sofosbuvir, one tablet once a day for 12 weeks, plus peganiferon or ribavirin for 12 weeks. One of the major differences of this study, it wasn't response-guided, where you got to stop at 12 weeks if you did well with respect to viral suppression. Everyone got 12 weeks. Now, what you see is the overall SVR rate in genotype 1 infected patients, 89%. Among those with genotype 4, 5, and 6, 97%. And only five patients out of 327 stopped from adverse events. 12 weeks of interferon, is a lot easier than 48 weeks. I compare it to, if 48 weeks is running a marathon, this is maybe a 10K, maybe a 5K in terms of side effects. It's still not easy, but it's more tolerable. This regimen, I think, may actually have some real potential in our HIV-infected patients because sofosbuvir is renally cleared and has no major interactions. Now, it's not been tested yet and been presented, but there is a clinical trial where I'm told we'll see some data on this PEG or ribavirin sulfosphorus regimen in HIV-infected patients. So this has been submitted to the FDA, and approval was anticipated, 12 weeks of therapy, up to 90%. Now, predictors of poor response included cirrhosis, so cirrhotic patients, only 80%. Now, this was the fission study, which was a head-to-head -head comparative trial 12 weeks of sulfosphere ribavirin, no interferon, versus PEG ribavirin for genotype 2 and 3. Large study, about 250 in each group, a randomized controlled trial. About 20% of the patients were cirrhotic, and about 70% had genotype 3. Now, up until very recently, we thought of genotype 2 and 3 as the same. They are not. This is the overall SVR rate among genotype 2 patients. You can see sulfosphere and ribavirin 
did very well compared to pegging interferon ribavirin. 91 and 98 percent. Cirrhosis had very little impact. And for genotype 2 patients, sofosfiroribavirin was clearly better than peganiferon ribavirin for 24 weeks. But among genotype 3 infected patients, it was at best a tie. And in fact, among cirrhotic genotype 3 infected patients, the SVR rate was only 30% with sofosfiroribavirin. ribavirin. So clearly, genotype 3 is behaving differently. Now, what's interesting is all the patients achieve an undetectable viral load during treatment. And the difference between 100% is all viral rebound when you stop. So viral rebound or relapse means you didn't finish off the virus. You left some infection in the liver. So how do you handle that? Well, maybe two ways. You give them a little interferon, or you treat longer. Now, fortunately, there was a, a study called Fusion that looked at genotype 2 and 3 infected patients who had taken pegribavirin and failed. 60% were genotype 3. The most had failed with that relapse pattern, and 35% were cirrhotic. And the treatment was for either 12 or 16 weeks. So, so phosphoribavirin for 12 versus 16. For genotype 2 patients, 96 100% with no cirrhosis, 78% with cirrhosis with longer therapy. So four extra weeks of sulfosfavir gives you an 18% increase. But look at the three patients. Four additional weeks of therapy, you go from 37 to 63, and 19 to 61 for genotype 3 cirrhotics. So based on this study, I anticipate that the overall genotype 3 regimen that may be approved will be sofosfiroribavirin for 16 weeks. There is a 24-week study being done in Europe called Valence. We'll see some data on that later this year. Genotype 2, I think it's going to be 12 weeks sofosfiroribavirin. Genotype 1 is the pegribavirin combination. Now, what about side effects? Well, there was a third trial that I'm not going to mention called Positron. I won't mention the outcomes. They were very similar. This randomized treatment in eligible patients, those who can't take interferon, to placebo versus sofosfiroribavirin for 12 weeks. So if you look at the AE profile, 207 patients treated with sofosfiroribavirin, 71 with placebo. Fatigue, 44 versus 24. So yes, sofosfir does contribute to fatigue, although it's likely the ribavirin inducing hemolytic anemia. Nausea, 22 versus 18, very similar. Headache, 21 versus 20. Insomnia, 19 versus 4. Ribavirin, particularly when you take it at night, causes some insomnia. But what you can see is that the side effect profile, with except for anemia and anemia-related side effects, such as fatigue, was very similar to placebo. And that's the pattern that's been seen in more than 3,000 patients tested to date. So this represents the package submitted to the FDA and one that we think will lead to approval uh, perhaps later this fall. Now, what about HIV co-infected patients? There is a large trial, well, relatively large, called Photon-1. It enrolled more than 100 genotype 1 patients and gave them 24 weeks of sofosfiroribavirin and also enrolled genotype 2 and 3 infected patients. This data is not from that trial. That trial we'll see later this fall. But this is a study done by Maribel Rodriguez-Torres in Puerto Rico. And she showed among 30 co-infected patients that the viral suppression over seven days of sulfosfir was identical to mono-infected patients across all genotypes. So we are hopeful that we'll see good results from that sulfosfir ribavirin study. Now, what's unique about that combination is 
there really aren't any drug interactions except for DDI, which you can't use with ribavirin. So we'll see with that data later this year. Now, one of the interesting issues in hepatitis C has been resistance. In HIV, you worry a lot about resistance and you measure genotypes. There has been no role of testing for HCV resistance to date. This was a study presented just last Saturday at the European Liver Meetings that looked at 41 people who failed bocephavir and tilapavir. They had virologic failure. 46% still had resistant variants circulating in their bloodstream more than two and a half years after stopping tilapavir. So these variants do hang around. These patients were 98% non-CC, so they were difficult to treat with respect to peganiferin and ribavirin, and most had genotype 1, subtype A. In the trial, they got a combination of an NS5A plus sulfosfavir, so two new drugs, like no protease inhibitor being used here, with or without ribavirin, and the response rate was essentially 100%. You can see the sustained virologic response rate all the way at the end is listed as 195%. But the, the patient that is in the empty box simply missed post-treatment week 12. He later showed up at post-treatment week 24 and was not detected. So 41 or 41 patients who had documented protease inhibitor resistance achieved sustained virologic response. And really no different than was seen in a similar uh, trial of 126 uh, treatment IE patients. So this was very reassuring in the hepatitis world because what it tells us is that we can retreat these patients with options that will be near here relatively soon. Now, this just shows the viral suppression according to whether or not there were resistant variants. You can see the variants that were detected in the table, and over 14 days, viral suppression was identical. Now, that doesn't mean that resistance won't matter. Simipravir has been submitted to the FDA for approval. And the data that was presented at the, at the EASL meeting tells us if you're a genotype 1 subtype A patient and you have a mutation pre-existing at position 80, you have a decreased likelihood of response. In fact, Simipravir didn't help much at all. Well, unfortunately, 40% of Americans are said to harbor that mutation at position 80. So you may have to do testing if you have a 1A patient and you're using Simipravir. And we don't have any data on NS5A failures yet. So there's still more to come with respect to virology. But clearly, the future is looking very bright with respect to overall outcomes. The other regimen that is in phase three is sulfosphere plus the NS5A called ledipasphere. This is an update of the data presented at CROI. If you look along the bottom line, 25 of 25 patients treated for 12 weeks achieved SVR, nine of nine null responders. This regimen is a one tablet once a day with or without ribavirin. The phase three clinical trials are nearly fully enrolled, testing 12 or 24 weeks. We could potentially have one pill once a day for gene type one hepatitis C. So what to do today? Well, if the patient has a minimal liver disease, so staging the patient with biopsy, fibroscan, or some other modality, my first thing is to treat their HIV regardless of CD4. I do believe antiretroviral therapy is beneficial. The second is no alcohol. And really, I don't believe there's a safe threshold. And when you try to give a patient a safe threshold, like a drink on your birthday or New Year's, well, it always gets garbled. And when they come back a year later, the birthdays have been more frequent than once a year. The other issue 
is to achieve or maintain a normal BMI. And this is increasingly important. People who are lean have less liver disease progression. The fourth is to drink coffee. A lot of people like milk thistle or silomarin, but the NIH did a study with your taxpayer dollars of milk thistle versus placebo, no benefit on liver disease. On the other hand, three cups of coffee a day, decaf or caffeinated, appears to have a substantial reduction in liver inflammation and progression. Now for this patient, assuming they're thin, not drinking alcohol, treated with art, and drinking coffee, can defer antiviral therapy. They can wait or enter clinical trials. Unfortunately, clinical trials for co-infected patients with interferon sparing regimens have lagged. They're coming, but they're behind where we'd like them to be. With significant fibrosis, I still think we should refer to clinical trials. And if you're going to treat chronic hepatitis C, in my opinion, the data that we have for Tlapropoceptor is as good as it's going to get. When the phase three trials are done, you won't want to read the studies because you've moved on. So phosphor will be approved by the end of this year. Semifrir is coming too. So based on the data we have and the 30% increase over placebo, I think it's reasonable to use these, carefully selecting both the patient, the regimen, and then of course finding someone to pay for the regimen is the final challenge. But I will say that the uh, companies that manufacture these drugs have given free access to patients with HIV, even though it's technically off-label. So don't, uh, don't be afraid to pursue the uh, potential free therapy if you're going to treat. So we'll go back to the questions. I think these are for some CME purpose. Which of the following agents are in development except? I've already told you it's not P7. So polymerase, protease, NS5A, P7, there is a drug in development, or helicase. Go ahead and vote. So it's the HeLa case. That one has really not panned out with respect to a target. And so you've, gone, you've learned that. P7, I wouldn't hold your breath. It's not coming to a clinic near you anytime. So you're not wrong to have little faith in P7. Which, which of these DAs are currently in phase three clinical trials? ABT450, Sumipravir, Declatisvir, Faldepravir, or all of the above? Go ahead and vote. So it's all of the above. Uh, in fact, Sumipravir for the 6.5%, uh, it has been submitted to the FDA. So it's actually completed its phase three trials. So I guess you're technically right, although the HIV trial is still ongoing, so it is still in phase three. Thanks for your attention. Thanks so much for the expected wonderful talk. And the last talk of the day, we do have some questions. and. Um, before I forget, I wanted to uh, make sure everyone knew that uh, all of the presentations will be on the uh, my IAS website Monday, except for Dr. Alsada's talk, which um, because some of the material that was used uh, was not uh, is, is not yet available, and uh, permission has not been given. Um, her slides will not be available, but everybody else's. So. Um, you do have access to all the material from today's really wonderful course. So here's a question. Um, not sure it's a therapeutic question, but um, I'll ask it. It's a case presentation of a 52-year-old 
HIV positive man with HCV, successfully treated for HCV six years ago with sustained viral response. And he comes in now with a viral load of greater than three million three months ago. What happened? What do you do? So this is a patient successfully treated? Previously. Yeah, so there's really two possibilities. One is reinfection. And it's important to note that the antibodies, hepatitis C, which you'll maintain all your life, are not protective. So we do see reinfection. Uh, that's a possibility. And there have been some very, very late relapses. You can literally count these on your hand. So what I typically do in that case is get an HCV genotype, see if it matches. Um, but most of these actually reflect reinfection. Uh, we've seen it both sexually, and we've also seen it through injection drug use, which is a, a by far a more efficient route of getting hepatitis C. Okay. okay. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of uh, interest in finding out how to get patients, and these would all be HIV co-infected patients, right. on trials. So I would anticipate that sometime over the summer or early fall, there will be two trials of uh, the interferon sparing regimens, uh, one from AbbVie, including the three DAAs plus ribavirin, and one from Gilead, including the NS5A inhibitor lodiposphere plus sofosfavir. Those will be very exciting trials. Uh, and I'm told they'll launch over the summer, but we don't have definitive data on that yet. And then the ACTG is currently designing a trial for the ABT regimen plus raltegravir-based ARV. So that will be coming relatively soon. Of course, soon means ACTG time. So it'll be uh, fall or so. Okay. Having a little trouble reading late in the afternoon, uh, our colleagues' handwritings. <laughs> Um, we all need to use EPIC for the questions in future years. Have <laughs> um, you seen much integrase resistance as a result of switching patients from PI regimen to uh, for telepravir? I think it's a great question. So yeah. the issue is a lot of people are switching from, let's say, a protease or a fibrins to raltegravir. And I think you do have to carefully select the patients for that. Uh, so make, make sure that you believe the raltegravir plus uh, peginterferon and ribavirin uh, that the regimen will hold. Now again, you are using triple therapy with peginterferon, so in general it's going to give you an antiviral effect. But it is something that if a patient has had an extensive antiretroviral experience, and they really can't be trusted to maintain suppression of ultegravir plus a nuke backbone, I, I would really not switch them in that case. And we do, need, we do need to take that into consideration. So that's a great question. It'll be even more important when we get to interferon sparing regimens, because I'm telling you, interferon is your friend when it comes to HIV suppression. Otherwise, not so much. Uh, do we treat all, treat all HIV, HCV co-infected patients with 48 weeks of triple therapy? So currently the recommendation is to treat all patients for 48 weeks of triple therapy. Uh, the idea is that longer therapy lowers the risk of relapse. You could argue with new drugs coming that work against PI failures and they're a rapid responder, why not give them 24, 28 weeks? And if they relapse, get them treated again later. But most patients, once they get into it, they're committed to trying to achieve a cure. And if they think it more longer therapy will help, they'll stay on. But the current recommendations are 48 weeks. 
Where can you get a fiber scan other than Baltimore? Well, so fiber scan, uh, well, you can go anywhere in the world except the United States and get one because they're, but uh, they're working out right now. So the FDA approved the fiber scan on April 4th. And what we really need is the CPT code. Uh, but there will be uh, the availability of the equipment that will run somewhere between uh, up to $100,000 for a machine. But they will be available, I'm sure, in a city like New York, in multiple locations where you can send your patients for a test that's actually easier than ultrasound. I've actually had several fiber scans done. I volunteered for those. I did not volunteer for the liver biopsy. That much I, I just said no. Very easy test. So there's an operational question. So in the past, um, hep C has been treated by hepatologists, not infectious disease doctors. Now we have infectious disease doctors teach, treating HIV and learning to treat HCV. Yeah. Um, we still don't have very many hepatologists treating co-infected patients. So when you look at, when one looks ahead, I think we've got very promising regimens for HIV, hepatitis C co-infected patients. And then the question becomes, who's going to treat them? Exactly. And my, my belief is that it will be a select group of hepatologists and gastroenterologists who find it interesting. Uh, most do not. That's why they're hepatologists and gastroenterologists they, and not infectious disease doctors. No hollow so, tube. So, you know, I think that I think it's going to come on the HIV clinician. In fact, we're beginning to think about a model in which we take our HIV providers and essentially say, you know what, you're responsible for your panel of patients to clear their hepatitis C. For the difficult to treat ones or patients you have questions on, the specialty clinic is here. We're, we'll remain open, but for the for the straightforward patients, go ahead and treat them, we're, and we'll back it up. We'll develop treatment algorithms and outlines. But it's the only way. We have about 2,000 co-infected patients in the Johns Hopkins Clinic alone, and it would be very challenging to treat them with our existing hepatitis C resources. We think we have to turn it over uh, to our HIV clinicians, who I, I believe really are up to the challenge. I think they'll they'll enjoy treating hepatitis C. I have to convince them of that, but that's a work in progress. As you mentioned, uh, it's curable. It's curable. Right. And interferon will be a distant memory within about uh, a year and a half. That would be good, too. But thank you so much for Thanks. a wonderful talk and questions. Um, so thank you all. It's a Friday afternoon. Um, thank you for staying. Uh, thank you to all of the wonderful speakers, to Donna Jacobson and IAS for really organizing a spectacular um, uh, course. Uh, I just want to reminisce a little bit because this was among the, among the broadest, I, I think, courses and in some ways most effective one, I think, that we've had. Um, and remind you, it seems like such a long time ago that we started out with um, a cure, um, something that we never would have thought we'd be talking about. And, and um, although it's a long, long way away, um, there are clinical trials that are looking into this issue of uh, shocking and killing. And over the next couple of years, we're going to hear a lot more about that. And that's a very, I think, exciting way to start um, and wind up with a talk about a curable disease that we hope we'll get to with HIV. Um, I thought that um, uh, uh, Mike uh, Sag's usual brilliant, engaging, scintillating, and very, very convincing talk was um, superb as usual. Um, and uh, uh, I still think 
and I think he alluded to the fact that it's important to have a randomized controlled trial to address this issue as a gold standard, that is, when to start antiretroviral therapy still, and that has implications both domestically and globally and will into the foreseeable future. So the SMART study will be fully enrolling and we'll have an answer in a year or two in terms of really the that will bypass the biases of all of the channeling or um, uh, biases of uh, cohort studies that we rely upon so heavily now to make this decision about when to start. I thought he was very convincing about all of the other reasons to start early as well, but it still has a bit of a wait and see, um, and uh, hopefully we'll have that answer and we'll be very, very secure in the issue, the final issue of when to start antiretroviral therapy, something that has been with us since the beginning of the availability of AZT. Um, I think we all agreed that Vicki Cargill's talk following uh, Mike Sag's talk really was a um, sort of a dose of reality in terms of many of the challenges we face and why it is so important to have a hard, a hard data on the when to start issue and also had a look at the larger, what she called, um, socio-ecological issues that impact so many of our patients' ability to be successful with HIV, both prevention and treatment. Um, I like David Allen Wall's uh, talk so much because it brought us to the end of the lifespan and where we are with HIV disease now, a place that we never thought we would reach. And um, whether there is or isn't a cure, I think it's an incredible, incredible remarkable historical event that people have lived as long as they have with HIV disease and even to the, um, toward the normal lifespan. Um, I thought that Jennifer Cates' talk was enormously reassuring. First of all, I understood the uh, ACA for the first time as it relates to what we do. Um, and there were some wonderful things that have happened that we tend to forget about, and that is no prior um, uh, no preconditions, no dropping out of, uh, by insurance companies uh, of uh, people with chronic conditions. Prevention as part of the program established and um, uh, uh, vindic uh, validated for the first time in terms of health care. Um, the issue of the power of the states to determine whether there's participation or not I think is an interesting and thorny one. It seems to me that the value is so clear that all of the states eventually will roll in despite the politics of it. And I was very interested that Connecticut and New York have already done that. For some reason, New Jersey is still on the fence. So those of you who are still here from New Jersey maybe can explain that or move to the other side of the metropolitan area. Um, Wafa's talk, as always, was uh, broad and uh, all-encompassing and was really the only one of the talks that dealt with the global issues um, that really is where the, still the, the, you know, the force of the epidemic is being felt. And um, although we deal with domestic issues in our day-to-day -day life, all of us are committed to, um, in the end, the end of AIDS, and the solution to that is going to be a global solution. Um, Paul Paul's question and answer section session I thought was great. Um, it's heavily weighted to the complexities of metabolic complications of older people uh, and antiretroviral therapy. And um, 
I think David Wall said a very important thing about the fact that most HIV providers are um, more adept with, um, with antiretroviral therapy and HIV-related issues and perhaps a le little less with, or substantially less, with general medical issues. Um, I myself rely upon my junior colleagues in clinic to help with that. Um, not all of you have that, but uh, it returns us again to being general medical doctors if we are HIV primary care providers. And um, that's a very, very difficult thing, but um, I think a lot of patients still rely upon all of us as their primary care provider. And it just calls attention again to the fact that we need to work in teams as we learn to do. And finally, um, I hope, uh, although hepatitis C is reaching the point where HIV was in the early days of heart, um, I look forward, to, and this is wonderful that these regimens are going to be easier, incredibly effective, shorter in duration, and um, so um, the, the, the upswing in therapeutic interest and uh, incredible potent agents in hepatitis C uh, curing the disease sounds like HIV and heart in the early day, days, and I hope that um, our own therapy armamentarium in the future will allow us to bring us to where HCV is, and that is able to cure a viral infection. So um, thank you all again. Uh, look forward to next year's course. It's always a little bit um, hard to predict exactly what the content would be. Uh, we ask you very much to uh, provide us with information about what you would like to hear and next year's course will be as exciting and as valuable as this one. Thanks again.